Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we're continuing our series in the book of Corinthians called Celebrating Our Freedom in Christ. The message title is Knowledge, Love, and Idols. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Neufeld now. Dorothy Sayers once said that Christianity is at the same time both extremely rigid and extremely elastic. And I think she was right, but I do think some explanation is required. The Ten Commandments are on the one hand rigid. They do not allow for exceptions at all. The first law forbids worshiping any god outside of Yahweh. No exceptions, no special pleading. The second law adds to the first by commanding that any representation or depiction of God is also forbidden. If an idol represents another deity or if it represents the one true God, in either case, to make such an idol is a sin. It is rebellion against God and it will not go unpunished. Now, there is the rigidity of the thing. There's no wriggle room here. Now to the elastic part. 2 Kings 5 tells of a Syrian commander who converted to Israel's God, and he has a special request, and it's recorded in verse 18. He was required by law to support the king of Syria, who would lean on the commander's arm and bow to worship the god Ramon in the temple of Ramon. When Naaman, the commander, bowed there to support his king, would the one true God forgive him, for he did not bow to worship, but to support his king. And to that, Elisha the prophet says, go in peace. So in this matter, grace was given to him. That's what I mean, rigid and yet elastic. When the Christian church began, it gained a foothold in Greek and Roman culture, a culture that was extremely idolatrous. The apostle Paul entered into the ancient city of Corinth and he preached the gospel of Jesus. He won a group of men and women to faith in Christ and established a living and vibrant church in that city. But the city of Corinth was a city in love with idolatry. The two most important deities were the goddess Epaphrodite, who was the goddess of love and sexual pleasure, and the god Poseidon, who was the god of the sea and the protector of those who were in it. And because Corinth was a seaport city, his presence was extremely important. But on top of that, the gods and goddesses of Corinth were many, perhaps 12 or 13 main gods and goddesses, but many, many more. You know, along with the temples were prostitutes, but also wine shops, food markets, and a host of other establishments that catered to the local economy. Uh, Furthermore, the temples also related to the emperor cult and were considered patriotic. They also drove both the commerce and the entertainment in that city. And frankly, it was impossible to live as a Christian in Corinth without working out how you respond to the temples and the gods and the goddesses. Imagine living in Las Vegas and opposing the gambling industry. But everything in that city, from the grocery store to the car dealerships, are a result of money flowing from the casinos. I mean, you can't live there without bumping into legal, state-sanctioned gambling. And you see, that's what it was like to live in Corinth. The temples and the idols supported life in that city, and everything flowed out from them. Now, let's begin by speaking about the marketplaces and their relationships to the temples. According to ancient sources, there were two kinds of meat available when a person went shopping for it. Some animals were sold directly to the butchers, 
And the butchers were quite concerned for the health of those animals. No diseased animals, this meat would be of the highest quality as it would make an impact on their business. But some animals were sold directly to the temples. And some people feel that temple meat was of an inferior quality, and others argue that was not so. But in either case, now that the meat was offered up, it would be resold in the markets, and no doubt the funds were used to support the temples, and because of the background of that meat, you could get it for a much reduced price. And so those who were poorer trying to stretch their dollar would buy this meat even though it might be inferior. And Christians, some of them, Those who belonged to the guilds because they had specialized trades were being especially hit in the pocketbook. That's because many trade guilds in that city demanded that one pledge loyalty to some of the gods and goddesses of the trades. This was done in the temples and Christians refused. And so they were drummed out of the guilds and they suffered financially because they refused to pour out offerings to the gods, and then they suffered a second time because they refused to eat the food that had been offered up to the gods. Less money, more expensive food, you're hit not once but twice. But here's where the rigid side of the Christian faith meets up with the elastic side. What do you do about food offered up to idols? Should one be allowed to eat food that was offered up to idols, yes or no? Now, if you listen to the opening broadcast on this program, I tried to make the point that many of these kinds of difficulties are not relegated to a distant culture. I know that among Chinese and Japanese Christians, the idea of food offered up to an idol is not a theoretical issue. You might go to someone's home and they have an idol in that home and they'll serve food that was offered up to an idol. So should you eat it? Now, Christians need to know, is it yes or is it no? Don't give me theories. Help me to know what to do. And in the Korean community, the idea of eating food offered up as a part of a worship of ancestors is a very real experience. I mean, how should believers respond to that? Or many Chinese restaurants have an idol in the restaurant, and he is or she is the god or goddess over that restaurant. See, as an example, some time ago, a friend took me out for lunch, and the restaurant had an idol in the entrance, and I immediately knew that this restaurant and the food in it had been dedicated to that idol. Was I free to eat there? Now, as an aside, just so you know that what I did, I informed my friend that my Christian conscience would be violated should I eat there. And I politely asked him if he would accompany me to a different restaurant. I'm going to say more about that as our series goes on. But all that to say that the situation faced by Christians in the city of Corinth some 2,000 years ago is not quite as foreign as you might think. So if we are forbidden from involvement with idols, how about meat sacrificed to idols? And interestingly enough, Paul doesn't respond the same way that some of us might and simply say, well, that's up to you. For as often is the case in matters such as this, there is so much more to say. Indeed, from what we will read in 1 Corinthians, there are three issues that this matter raises. First, What should I do if my behavior is misunderstood by others? And so let's say I decide to buy the meat offered to idols, not as worship of the idols, but as an exercise of my freedom, but others don't understand it that way. What then? See, in Corinth, someone might think naturally that your buying food offered to an idol meant that you're comfortable with the worshiping of the gods of that city and found it to be acceptable. 
Now, as a Christian, you know that you're not comfortable with idols at all. In fact, you're buying the food freely because you know that the gods have no hold on you and you can buy or not buy because in Christ you are free. But others watching you may not understand that and assume that your worship of Christ is your belief that the worship of Christ is consistent with the worship of the thousands of the Corinthian gods. Now, please don't assume this isn't relevant to us. You know, for instance, one of the great difficulties in sharing Christ with someone who's, for instance, a Buddhist or perhaps a Hindu is that a Hindu might say, I surrender to Christ and invite him into my life. And for them, Christ is simply added to a long list of gods and goddesses that they've already invited into their life. And at some time in our discussion, we have to make it clear that the Christian faith is a monotheism, that that our God is a jealous God. Somehow we have to make it clear what we mean when we say Jesus and why we hold that Jesus is Lord of all. You can't worship the one true God and worship idols. And it is important that we communicate that and that we make a stand. And that comes right back to the basic question in Corinthians. What should I do if my behavior, or to put it in the context of this series, what should I do if the exercise of my freedom in Christ is being misunderstood? The second question, is it possible that some things are sin in some contexts and not sin in others? You know, isn't that a good question? I have a friend who had played hockey at a level just under the NHL who was involved in drinking parties and stuff that was a whole awful lot worse than that. And that was a part of the hockey scene that he had grown up in. And then he came to Christ and he hung up his skates and he refused to play hockey at any level, even at a church hockey league level. You know, I asked him why and he said, you know, I I just can't play hockey with a clean conscience. You know, it was not about hockey for him. It was about the former associations in his life with hockey. For him, hockey had become an unclean thing. Do you understand how that can be so for so many of us in so many different areas in life? So hang in there with us. There's so much more to say as we continue to consider what these things mean for each of us. You remind us every day, you challenge us to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful. And it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical, and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of the ministry team, Dr. John, Phil, the hosts of In Doubt, thank you for all you do. To discover all the ministry resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Listen to Romans 14, verse 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, if you can't do something as an expression of your faith, it is sin. 
Now, I know some folks say, you know, I, I can live with my girlfriend in faith, but, but there is no genuine faith if what you're doing is a direct violation of God's word. That's always sin. You're already in bondage and your freedom is gone. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those gray areas, those areas we are most tempted to build rules around where there are no clear rules, those areas we struggle to find an answer where there is no clear answer. The fact is, some things are sin for some and okay for others. Which leads to a third question. To what extent am I responsible for the spiritual lives of others in my local church, among my Christian friendships, and in the general culture? Or to what extent should I limit my freedom for the well-being of others? See, in, in Corinth, that was the question. And when some insisted that the apostle Paul should eat only kosher foods, and that if he did not, he would offend the conscience of some, he not only refused to comply, but he went so far as to tell those Christians who insisted that he comply that they were denying the gospel. And so there are times when we should limit our freedom and other times when we should not. See, are you confused? So let's get back to the question. Should the Corinthian Christians be allowed to eat meat that was offered up as a religious sacrifice to the gods? Just a plain yes or no, please. So let's listen to the beginning of Paul's answer. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, it's always easy to take a question like the one that had been asked of Paul and simply answer with a yes or no. Yes, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols or no, you can't. Tell us straight out, what are the rules? But Paul is less concerned right now with the rules, but rather with the principles that lead to Christian freedom. So let's start with verse one. I want you to notice Paul's statement, we all possess knowledge. Now what he has in mind here is the knowledge that believers had that the idols in Corinth had no real existence. You know, that's what he says in verse four, and we'll get to that in our next broadcast. The idols had no more power than the power that human beings gave to them. If you scoffed at their power, the power over you is broken. If you feared them, they had power. The idol itself is nothing. See, in Corinth, this knowledge was no doubt a part of basic Christian training in that city. If you converted to Christ in Corinth, you would have been taught as a part of basic Christian discipleship, a course called Christians and Idols. Now, that basic truth didn't yet teach you what to do with food sacrifice to idols, but you would never be able to know what to do with food sacrifice to idols unless you had that basic understanding of what idols actually were. And the Christians in Corinth were so well-versed in the theology of idols that Paul could actually say to them, we all possess knowledge because all of them had had that training. Now, might I say something here? See, I think it's sad that in many cases, Paul could not have said the same thing to contemporary Christians, we all possess knowledge. And that's because, as is often the case, especially with those raised in the church, they're lacking basic and essential Christian doctrines. You know, it's for that reason that a great many contemporary Christians don't know how to respond to, for instance, the idolatry of sexual immorality in our country, or the idolatry of accepting all viewpoints as equally valid in our country. 
See, unless you possess Christian knowledge, you're not in the place to make any decisions at all. Basic Christian doctrinal training is necessary. But now Paul adds something to that. This knowledge, he said, puffs up. Now, just so that we don't misunderstand him here, Paul is not saying that knowledge of Christian truth is negative, or even that knowledge of Christian truth makes us arrogant. And for those of us who have been well-trained in Christian doctrine and truth, who have memorized and internalized the doctrines of, let's say, the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, justification by faith, the inerrancy of Scripture, the second coming of Christ, even sound principles of Bible study, I mean, all of that is not the pathway to pride. It's a part of the pathway to Christian discipleship. Paul's not saying that knowledge puffs up. He means to say that knowledge without love puffs up. Anytime we learn something that is disconnected from the love of Christ, we have done badly. For instance, I've often taught a group of Christians the attributes of God. And then, lest this puffs up, we need to stop, worship, confess our shortcomings, and revel in the perfections of God. We can't love God, worship him without knowledge. Knowledge is essential, but knowledge without love is deadly. And so knowledge for knowledge's sake alone puffs up, or we might say knowledge by itself makes us balloons. What do I mean by that? See, another way of saying that is to say knowledge inflates. And in the Greek, what is behind this word is the idea of pumping air into bellows, or in modern times, like blowing up a balloon. You know, balloons are big and they appear substantial, but one little pinprick and they're done. In fact, to inflate means to have this illusion of self-importance, kind of like Aesop's fables. There's a frog that kept on saying, I can get this big, and then he took another breath, you know, and then he got bigger, and he finally popped himself, and he died. Knowledge alone makes us overconfident about our opinions. We're confident that we've got the truth, and we say, you know, I can get this big. You know, we can easily argue for our perspective, and we tell everyone else where to get off and even mock those who are weak in the faith. Well, fine and well, but you can't build a lasting, impactful church like that. Furthermore, you can't live for the glory of God with that attitude, and you're like the frog. You went pop. Now to verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I wonder how many of us have grasped that basic thought. See, once we master basic Christian belief, we don't yet know as we ought to know. Our Christian life has hardly begun because God always intended that all of his truth exist in the atmosphere of love both for him and for others. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's assume for a moment that a brother or a sister in a local church is seriously out of line, either in their behavior or in their belief systems. The easy approach is simply to fire darts at them, put them in their place, show them what they're doing wrong. But the exercise of our faith is never an exercise of winning arguments. It's an exercise of winning our brother or our sister. You see, that's why in Matthew 18, we're told that when someone has sinned against us, the person who is affected goes to that person one-on-one. They intend to win over their brother or sister. See, we're a redemptive community, and excommunication is never a sign that one side has prevailed. It is a sign that one side has failed to win over the brother. 
See, there's so much more to be said here, but I, but I hope you can see how important the principle of love is when we discuss disputed matters. Imagine it in Corinth. You know, some said, you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and others said, well, wait a minute, we know an idol is nothing and we are free to eat or not. It depends on the individual conscience. And Paul intervenes and says, this is not a matter of who's right and who's wrong. We will get to that, but have you loved each other? See, why does the person who buys food offered to idols do that? I mean, why not give him or her the dignity to explain themselves? I mean, perhaps they don't care to obey the first and second commands. Perhaps that's it. Or perhaps they've learned that idols are nothing and therefore they're exercising their freedom. And perhaps they're desperate to feed their families. But if we listen or if we love, we might get to know as we should know. You can't be free unless you add love to knowledge. Now to verse three. But if anyone loves God, He is known by God. And here Paul says, the ability to love comes from God. God chose his people and implanted love in them. It is unique to being a believer. So when we try to understand what we are free to do and what we are not free to do, if we do not love each other as a first priority, the discussion itself is a worthless and a senseless discussion. Heavenly Father, help us to know you well and help us to know your doctrines well. But, oh, Heavenly Father, if we should only know that and not be given in compassion and love for others, we have nothing. Help us, oh Lord, to please you. Amen. John, in our continuing messages about freedom in Christ, I got to ask you this. You know, if we see someone who's... uh, expressing their freedom in a way that's negative towards others, uh, or maybe their behavior isn't what it ought to be, do we need to address that? Yeah, I think we do. And we have to do one of the most difficult things that most of us find we can do. Rather than speaking to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of my friends, we need to actually take the initiative and go to that individual. And when we do that, it's it's remarkable that sometimes relationships uh, can be built. I was having a, a conversation just the other day with someone who took aside a, a Christian brother and, and spoke about a certain behavior pattern that they had. And the first response back, was that difficult for you to come and talk to me? And he said, yeah. He said it built friendship and it built a sense of accountability we've we've never had before. So yeah, I think we need to take responsibility for our brother and sister, begin to love them deeply, and, uh, and uh, confront them at times when they're misusing and mishandling uh, that which God has given them. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you and the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada 
Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. More information is on its way, so keep an eye on backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry update email. Or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We're looking forward to meeting you there.